Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we sit down with Captain Billy Rotney and discuss his home fishery of the historic Mosquito Lagoon, his background in biology, and how it helps him as a guide and angler. During this podcast, Billy shares with us his love for targeting trophy-class fish, and how a purchase at a flea market as a kid led to a lifelong love of fishing. As you will see, Billy's a wealth of knowledge and full of passion and insight. We hope that you enjoy this time together. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? At? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. All right. Hey, Billy, thanks for hanging out with us and joining us on the podcast today and uh, showing us your dock, showing us your coral aquariums. Yeah, no uh, problem, man. We're, I'm going to I'm gonna definitely ask some questions around that because that was pretty neat. Uh, but before we get into this, I'd love to hear about how you got into the outdoors and how you got into guiding. So, oh, man, thinking back on it all, pretty much uh, I grew up on the water in Port Orange. Um, my grandma... My mom and I, we all lived in the same house in Port Orange and uh, it was on Riverside Drive. And I would see guys fishing when I would ride my bike up and down you know, the road there. And I kind of just would stop and spark conversation with them. And it was just something that I just kind of got into spontaneously. I, my dad wasn't a fisherman. Um, I didn't have, I'm an only child. I didn't have old, you know, brothers or sisters that were into fishing or any anyone else that was influential uh, in my life at that point in time. My mom was a single parent. Um, so I just kind of just got into it organically just by being near the water and seeing people catching fish. And it was just something that, that sparked interest in me. And uh, I caught the bug bad at an early stage. Uh, you know, I was probably seven years old when I really started to fish heavily on my own. I remember I went to uh, Port Orange Elementary First grade, first day of school. One of my one of my friends, uh, still friends with me to this day, my buddy Kyle Hendren. I remember, you know, being next to him in the in the chairs and being like, "Hey, do you you know you want to be friends?" And and he's like, "Yeah, sure." So, he also lived on the water uh, in Harbor Oaks, a little further down Riverside Drive, and uh, his dad was into fishing, and he and I, you know, spent a lot of time fishing together, and we grew up fishing, you know, you know, bass ponds and that kind of stuff, and and that really accelerated the the process of being serious about it um you know at that point in time uh you know it was the 90s walker's k was on every weekend morning um rarely did i miss an episode 
uh, we all look up to flip for all the years of that. And it really was a different era of fishing that I truly miss, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I wish, I wish I was a little older just so I could experience that when I was a little bit wiser, you know, mm -hmm. than, than when I was just a child. But, uh, but that's kind of, uh, how I got into it. Um, as far as, you know, the fly fishing side of things, I remember there was a flea market. It's still there to this day. It's off US one in Port Orange. And there was a, the only place that I could find fishing lures or fishing tackle that was within my, uh, allowed distance to ride my bike from the house was this flea market. So I would go down there and he had antique tackle and I would always look through it and, you know, try to, you know, find lures or fishing poles or anything that I could that was, you know, neat. And I remember I, I went down there and I saw this fly rod, um, and I'd seen Flip using one on, on Walker's K, so I knew it was a fly rod. Uh, and I was like, man, how, how much is that? And he's like, $10. And I, I was like, and I only got like six bucks. So I was like, I was like, please don't sell it. I was like, bring it back. I've never pedaled my bike faster. Rode all the way home, uh, ran upstairs to my grandma's, and I was like, Grandma, what can I do to like earn like five bucks real quick so I can go get this fly rod? I was mm -hmm. like, can I rake some leaves up? She's like, sure, just go rake those leaves around the tree. I don't think I've ever raked leaves faster mm -hmm. in my life. I raked them up as fast as I could. And, uh, Pedaled, pedaled back down to the uh, flea market, got this fly rod and came home and and uh, I remember like looking at it thinking like, well how does how does this work you know mm -hmm. now so uh, subsequently after watching a, a a few episodes of Walker's Cane really paying attention to it and just playing with it out in the yard I figured out how to you know load the rod and, mm -hmm. and, and double haul and at that point in time uh, my buddy Kyle and I both got into uh, fishing you know bass ponds we were, we would get these little poppers they would come in those little uh, uh, same little rotating top containers that like uh, weights would come in. It was like a little clear mm -hmm. plastic container with like a pie shape cuts and you would, yeah, yeah. you would spin it and you get these little uh, pre-tied pre flies. You could buy them from Walmart for, for panfish. We'd catch bass on them. But uh, that's kind of how I uh, how I got into the fishing thing as a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from there it, it, it only progressed. And you went to college for a little while. Could you tell us about what your initial plans were in life when you headed off to college? I, you know, I, I graduated high school and uh, I started, started, you know, going to college and I really had, had planned on being a marine biologist is really what I wanted to do. And I, I simultaneously kind of became a professional fisherman and it just, it just one of those things where, uh, I realized that, that, that being a fisherman was more what life had in store for me than, than the marine biology thing. But I never lost my love for marine biology, which is still to this day, something that, you know, deeply resonates with me. I'm friends with a lot of marine mm -hmm. biologists and, uh, I enjoy having conversations with them about not just, you know, well, what's going on with this, but the, the science behind mm -hmm. it, you know, the actual, uh, you know, biological processes and things that are causing the events that take place in our estuaries and mm -hmm. just how, how the fish work, what makes them tick, you know, not just, uh, uh, where they live and what they eat, but what really, you know, makes the ecosystem function. So, uh, but you know, I, I, my, my, my cousin's a marine biologist. She kind of, uh, gave me a little insight on it. And, uh, I just decided that fishing was going to be, you know, a better, a better career for me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, probably I was maybe 20 years old, 19 years old, um, you know, I, I was out fishing with, uh, a friend of mine, um, captain Eric Perez. And I remember he told me we were fishing and I had, had just pulled him on a really nice fish. And, uh, 
he jokingly turned around, or maybe he wasn't joking. He turned around and looked at me and said, man, you ever thought about being a fishing guide? You'd be a really good fishing guide. And I was like, like when somebody you like really look up to you says something like that to you and you know, it changes your perspective on it. So that was kind of a, a push mm-hmm. in that direction as well. And I, I had a, uh, a bumper sticker on my bedroom door uh, that my grandma gave me when I was probably seven or eight years old Once I, when I got into fishing that said, work us for people who don't know how to fish. Yeah. And that was on my bedroom door my entire life growing up. And I, it was all like everything kind of just aligned. And uh, I realized that that was, that was what I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. what, When you were guiding around your early 20s, what type of guiding were you doing? Were you targeting flat species or fly fishing? What? Yeah, I, I, I really primarily, my, my whole career started and revolved around Mosquito Lagoon. So, uh, as I got a little older and I was mentioning, I was into fly fishing and, and, uh, we were fishing the bass ponds and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I made a deal with my mom that if I got good grades that she would get me a real boat. I I had a Ginu. We, we lived in the water, so I had a Mm -hmm. Ginu and and I would go out in the Ginu and, you know, I only could go so far from the house and, Mm -hmm. and, and fish. But, uh, once I turned 16, I had my driver's license, had a truck, you know, I made a deal that if I got good grades, I would get a boat. So I got a Carolina Skiff J16 and rigged it up with uh, some two by fours to make a polling platform. And I was gonna mm-hmm. have a flat skiff, you know, one way or another. And uh, as soon as we had it rigged up and ready, we took it down to Mosquito Lagoon. I dropped in, I don't know why I drove past the other ramps, but we dropped in at, at Biolab. And I came out of, the, out of the ramp and I started to run south down the shoreline of Biolab. And I saw, it was still early in the morning, you know, the water was like illuminating green. Um, and I saw this giant push in front of us and I stopped and I'm like, what is that? Mm-hmm. And two seconds later, we saw the tail sticking out of the water. And that was like a moment that kind of like changed my life. Mm-hmm. I, I realized that Mosquito Lagoon was incredibly special at that point in time. And, you know, we, we started, you know, seriously catching fish and, and we learned quickly. And I uh, decided, you know, that, you know, catching one on fly would be pretty cool too. So how I kind of got into the into the real not just fly fishing in general, but how I got into the catching fish on fly is a pretty cool story as well. I uh, when I lived on the water when I was younger, I had mm-hmm. boats that my mom would let me take out, and I had a little Johnson three point three that had a shear pin in it. Didn't have a, a hub in it; it had a mm-hmm. shear pin. So I was out fishing with my buddy Kyle and uh, this other guy Ricky Pasternak. We uh, we were out fishing in Rose Bay. And we were trying to outrun a thunderstorm and we hit an oyster bar and it sheared the pin on the motor. Well, we got out and we pushed the boat and we're, we're, we didn't have oars with us, of course, super mm-hmm. responsible. Uh, we, we get out and we're pulling, pushing the boat and we get as far as we can back before the thunderstorm just completely broke loose. Mm-hmm. And we're going back up the creek to my parents' house. And when that happened, you know, we were probably all of maybe 12 years old at that time, stopped and there was a dock right there, climbed up on the dock ran up to the back door and we were three little 12 year old kids mm-hmm. terrified. There's this lightning thunderstorm going on around us, knocking the door and this guy opens the door and he, he lets us in and he's like, Holy cow, you guys out here fishing in this, in these, in this weather. And we're like, no, we got stuck. The shear pin on the motor broke. And, uh, I was like, can we please use your phone, you know, to call my mom. Cause I knew my mom was going to kill me at that mm-hmm. point. And we were up, she told yeah. me not to wait for the thunderstorm to come through. So, uh, call my mom and she's like, I'll be right over there. So, uh, in the meantime, he pulled out some photo albums and he shows us all these pictures of these, these, these big snook and tarpon mm-hmm. and redfish and all these other fish. And I was like, wow, this guy is like a serious fisherman. So as, as the years went by, I could see his dock from my parents' dock and I'd be out practicing fly fishing off the dock. You know, just I'd pick a leaf in the water and just try to just peg it with the fly as many times mm-hmm. as I could. 
and uh, he'd be out fly fishing off of his dock and I'd wave at him and he'd wave at me. And when I got my boat, when I turned 16, I was like, man, I got to go over to his house and, and see if he wants to come fly fish in the lagoon with me. So I ride over to his house and, and uh, knock on the door. And I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me. I was that little boy that knocked on the door all those years ago soaking wet. I said, I see you fly fishing. I'm the guy that fly fished off my dock over there. I was like, I, I got a boat. And I said, we take it on a Mosquito Lagoon. I was like, I think that we could probably catch a redfish on fly. And he's like, yeah. He's like, come inside. Let's let's talk about it. So I, we, we went inside. And uh, I, I, I told him about my fly rod that I had, which I don't even remember what it was. I think it was a Lampson reel. It was something super basic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, I'll show you some of my tackle. So he busts out these G Loomis rods with T-bore reels and all mm-hmm. this other stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is this is like incredible tackle. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about fishing and he showed me a few fly patterns and we decided we were going to go that weekend. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I was like, I, I, you know, I know where the fish are. I was like, you know, I can get us in range with the push pole. I was like, what time you want me to be here to pick you up? You know, I got my boat. And he's like, why don't we take my boat instead? And I was like, Sure, I, I didn't know you had a boat. He's like, mm-hmm. "Come on, it's not in the garage. I'll show you." He opens the door in the garage. There's a whip race in there, mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, "Is this the boat that Flip Pallet fishes out of in Walker's Cave Chronicles?" This was like, you know, maybe like 2001 or something like that. Mm-hmm. This was way back then, right when Hell's Bays were first coming onto the scene. He's like, "Yeah." So uh, uh, we went out and fished, and and uh, caught my first redfish on fly off the bow of his boat. And, uh, that really kind of shaped the direction I wanted to go even mm-hmm. more. So I'd, I'd seen what the lagoon had to offer and how special it was, but, but, you know, fishing off of a hell's bay, fishing, th- feeling what it felt like to throw a T-bore real combo with a G Loomis rod, uh, and how much different it threw than whatever mm-hmm. the heck I was throwing at the time really changed, you know, my perspective on everything. And, and, uh, pushed me in the direction, gave me a nudge mm-hmm. to, uh, to be that, you know, that type of fisherman and, and fly fishing was my, was my passion really. And of course, you know, starting your guiding career, you know, you want to fly fish or you want to do, you know, other types of fishing. You don't really have a choice. Sometimes you got to fish with whoever's willing to book with you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had to bait fish too and, and, uh, spin fish, but, uh, uh, you, you know, I really enjoyed the fly fishing aspect of it. And I, I tried my best to focus on mm-hmm. that in the first part of my career. Did you keep up with him as you got older and? Oh yeah, absolutely. Dustin, Dustin Ramey is still a good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, He and I fish on a regular basis. We actually just took the same whip ray that I caught my first red fish on fly. We took a fishing just the other day uh, in the lagoon and had a good time. And and, uh, we go down and fish in the Keys uh, every year. He and I go down and uh, still fish on a regular basis. So Dustin's been a very influential person in my life and uh, someone I consider a a great friend. Mm Mm-hmm. And I can tell just from talking with you today that it's very obvious that that biology kind of interested in the environment kind of has played out in how you approach fishing. Could you talk a little bit more about how that marine biologist uh, at heart part of you has played into how you guide today and how you try to set yourself up for success? Absolutely. So um, even before the lagoon started to have the problems that it's had, uh, you know, I, 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 recognize just how incredible of a place it was from you know the water glowing green in the morning from bioluminescence to just the incredible amount of fish that 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 were in the lagoon and uh i always had aquariums since i was a little boy i've had aquariums since i was 12 years old and the lagoon was kind of like a big saltwater aquarium and i i really just used some of the 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 knowledge that i had from that to kind of 
better figure out how the lagoon ticked, if you will, and figure out how it, how it worked. Um, that was at least what I thought I was doing. Fast forward to 2011 when the Oyambra bloom started. I started to look at the lagoon in a different different manner, in a different light, and I, I realized just how how sensitive it was and that we had a major problem, you know, on our hands and that it was going to be something that we all had to had to face and address. And, you know, going from 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 that perspective, it really allowed me to to try to to wrap my head around what was happening with the lagoon and to be kind of uh, an intermediary to elucidate the data from you know what the guys in the water are seeing to the scientists and from what the scientists are trying to explain to the guys in the water and be able to translate that back and forth because there is a gap there you know you got mm-hmm. these scientists who spend all this time in 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 the classroom and academic stuff uh, in in the lab and they spend very little time in the water and then you got these guys that spend all this time in the water and they don't understand the scientific side of of it you know in in the, the the reality behind that is is the guys that are in the water all the time they're the ones that really know the lagoon. They know mm-hmm. them better than anybody. Better mm-hmm. even they may not be able to explain it to you, but they they just know it. You know they know mm-hmm. what makes the lagoon work. They understand every nook, cranny. I mean, there's there's not a sh- spot of a shoreline, a sandhole, a bar, an island that I haven't pulled past and over, spent time around hundreds of times over in the entire lagoon from New mm-hmm. Smyrna all the way down to you know NASA and in, 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 into the uh, Indian River. So having that that true intimate knowledge of the lagoon kind of gives you you know your finger on the pulse of what's happening and understanding how the nitrogen cycle works and how uh chemistry and marine seawater you know comes into into play kind of gave me a, a a different perspective on how things were happening in the lagoon and i felt a deep sense of responsibility to do what was right for the lagoon because it, it was such a special place to me mm-hmm. i've fished all over, you know, the Keys are beautiful, other parts of Florida are beautiful, but there was just something about Mosquito Lagoon that was just so special to me personally. It was my favorite place to fish. It still is. And, uh, you know, my understanding of how, uh, how saltwater biology works, um, plus my understanding of the fishery, I just felt like I was the guy that had to step up and, mm-hmm. and, and do the right thing for the lagoon. And it wasn't the most popular position to take. You know, everybody wanted to just hope that the lagoon would get back to the way it was. And this was just a little blip in, 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 in the grand scheme of things. But as the years went on and as the process got worse and worse of, of this cycle of algal blooms, um, people had to kind of come to terms with how things, how things are and how, mm-hmm. how, how the lagoon is. And, and I, you know, I, I, I feel like now at this point, um, I have a better understanding of, of how, you know, what actually happened to the lagoon. I feel like I have a, a, a good understanding of the whole process of events that has led us to where we are, you know, mm-hmm. from where we were. But, uh, um, you know, to this point, to get to this point, um, my activism that I started from the moment I saw the water turn brown, uh, you know, some people were, you know, thanks for standing up for the lagoon, you know, and, and some people were like, you know, upset because I was, you know, shining light on a problem that might've hurt business. It wasn't good for us as fishing guides, obviously, but I was trying to have foresight Mm -hmm. and, you know, I wasn't trying to hurt anybody's business in the moment. I was trying to really help everybody in the long run. And that's kind of, we're all, 
you know, there's a lot of solidarity now. Mm-hmm. Um, not much denialism left about what's going on with the lagoon. And that's, it's, it's good to see that. But from all that, I kind of got propelled into uh, a more serious role, you know, than I was from the moment that the algorithm started through probably 2014, I was angry. I was, mm-hmm. I was upset and hurt. Um, I was very off the cuff about my remarks about the lagoon, about how I felt about tournaments, how I felt about people killing fish out of the lagoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was abrasive, nothing short of abrasive about it. And a lot of that was driven by pure emotional degradation over what was happening in the lagoon. What, what I had planned my entire future, my career, what I had spent my entire adult life focusing on, mm-hmm. I was watching it deteriorate like before my eyes. And I, I understood that it was a serious problem. So... It wasn't something I could just ignore. Um, in circa 2015 or so, I was asked by Councilwoman Deb Dennies, who is the still the, the Councilwoman for South Volusia, to serve uh, as a, on one of the advisory committees for the Indian River Lagoon National Estuary Program. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, the National Estuary Program for the Indian River Lagoon was overseen by the St. John's River Water Management District, and they wanted to bring it back more into the public realm with the the lagoon deteriorating at the rate that it was and people being upset not just myself but there was lots of people not not just fishermen but bird watchers and kayakers and just environmentalists mm-hmm. in general that wanted to uh all the stakeholders of the lagoon that wanted to have a part in it so uh the state of florida created a special district uh the called the uh, uh indian river lagoon council which was mm-hmm. designed to host the national estuary program uh rather than the saint john's water management district um the executive director, Dr. Dwayne DeFries, someone who I uh, admire highly and look up to, he's a, a great man, mm-hmm. uh, is, is, was also part of founding the NEP uh, or, or, or starting the NEP for the Indian River Lagoon back when it was started. Uh, really, you know, is the right guy for the job. Um, brought everybody together and, you know, we've made some progress in trying to form a base map for, because it's non-regulatory, so we're not... We're not out to to tell people specifically, you know, or, or to, to, to enforce, I should say, you mm-hmm. know, rules. We, we just we look at it from a scientific perspective and we say these are the things that are recommended for the best course of action. And then municipalities and counties can then act upon those recommendations to reduce their nutrient loading and, and, and other sources of pollution for mm-hmm. the lagoon. So that's been a rather interesting journey. And it really brought a a layer of maturity and, and responsibility that I didn't have before. I, I had to to put aside the the anger and the emotions mm-hmm. that I was displaying when this all was happening at first and really take, you know, a seat at the at the adults table and think like, okay, you know, how rather than pointing fingers and and, and, and attacking, you know, not people per se, but getting away from that, how can we attack the problem? And mm-hmm. that was that was a big big turning point in in my life and just how I, I dress the lagoon and, and how I felt I could really help things. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like also just as you've understood the lagoon more that it's helped you to be able to locate fish, target fish, kind of, I would imagine that it would be kind of not only helpful for you and being able to be an advocate for your lagoon, but also for you to be able to grow your business and putting people on fish. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, learning what the fish do in, in knowing them intimately, uh, certainly, you know, puts the odds in your favor Mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, especially prior to the lagoon 
truly uh, reaching a, a, a tipping point, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, where, where it declined. Um, I knew the fish so intimately. I, I, I knew, especially the lagoons, bull reds, um, they're so special to me. And uh, I knew exactly where they were going to be, when mm-hmm. they were going to be there, what they were going to do. And I didn't want them to be in a school of 200 fish. That was cool. But mm-hmm. I wanted... I like the places where I knew I could find just a couple, you know, three mm-hmm. or four fish cruising and I knew they were going to be on an edge or they were going to be on this part of a bar or a flat and, uh, understanding, you know, some of the lagoons biology, as far as the, the species of animals that were mm-hmm. out there from, from all, you know, all the flora and fauna, the plants, the, the, the invertebrates, the, the benthic invertebrates, uh, all the way up to the top of the food chain really helps, you know, dial in the fishery beyond just patterning, mm-hmm. you know, things and saying, okay, well, the fish were here at this time last year, so they should be here again at this time this year. Yeah. There's more to that. There's, there's, you know, layers. Did the, is there a shrimp run going on? You know, what time of year did the trout feed on, on, on the croakers or on pigfish? And why are they feeding on those, mm-hmm. on those? And tr- for example, on the trout and the pigfish, it's not always just because they're hungry. Uh, Pigfish and pinfish are one of the biggest predators of cyanidae species, which are trout, you know, redfish, black drum, all that, mm-hmm. you know, even croakers, uh, all those, all those species that are part of that, that family. Pinfish, pigfish, all these little smaller fish are uh, voracious predators of juvenile cyanidae fish. So the trout will attack, you know, a pigfish just because. They're worried about it eating their juveniles mm-hmm. and in eating their eggs and and of course it's a meal for them at the same time. But uh, little things like that, you know, and understanding, you know, what you know all the other fish and inverts in the system are doing really dictates what the bigger fish are doing. Yeah. You know, it's and, and we know that other places when it comes, to, you know, whether it's trout and it's a it's a it's a it's a some kind of a of a of a, of a hatch of, of flies or something or it's tarpon in the keys on worms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen that play out in all these different fisheries, but there's there's a nuanced level to that that really determines what makes the fish tick. And if you pay really close attention to your surroundings, you can kind of see that and, mm-hmm. and understand it. What are some tips for paying close attention to your surroundings? Like what what types of because I know I know a lot of people what they want to do is they want to go out and they want to pattern, pattern, pattern. So, you know, these fish this time, how do you get deeper into that next level of actually understanding it all? Patterning is important. So, you know, to understand what time of year to look for certain things. Mm-hmm. But looking is really the the, the the most important thing. The majority of the days that I go out and I'm out scouting and I'm out by myself, I I don't even catch the fish. I just I just watch them. I just watch them, and I watch everything else around me. I watch the, the the water down to, you know, what's going on with, you know, what what are these little fish that I'm seeing around the grass right now? Is there, you know, what's what am I stirring up as I'm push pulling? Are these shrimp skipping out of the boat right now for a reason? Are they getting ready to run? I I, I spend so much time looking at the minor little details of 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 all the stuff. And then of course that opens Pandora's box of, of curiosity of, well, what species of grass is this? What kind of, of marsh plant is mm-hmm. that? And, you know, as, as you, as you start to understand all the different species that make up the ecosystem, it's a puzzle and you can mm-hmm. put it together. And, and my, my, my biggest tip on how to, how to dive into that deeper is to don't focus every single fishing trip on just how many fish can I catch or, you know, and as a guide, you have to when you're out with clients. But mm-hmm. when you're when you're fishing for yourself, spend time. You know, just just 
being one with the environment. Just mm-hmm. just look at it. Look at what the birds are doing. Look at what the, the, the animals around the lagoon are doing or around your fishery are doing. Get down on your hands and knees on the deck. Look at the bottom. Look at the water. Look at look at the, the smallest animals in the estuary affect what the biggest animals in the estuary are doing. So it's mm-hmm. important to to pay attention to everything, not just pushes and wakes and, mm-hmm. and tails and, and you know signs of, of, of the game fish and the sport fish that we're targeting, but the the smaller fish and the smaller mm-hmm. other parts of the puzzle are really what what puts it all together for you. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say me and you are going out together. We're on a trip. We're going to a fishery that you've never been to before, and it's not really like something that you're familiar with. What things are you going to try to first kind of key in on and then work back towards? Like, what are the most important things and then move to the more minute? So, you know, fish are creatures of habit. So what fish do in one area is, is a good just of what they might do in another area. But mm-hmm. for example, redfish in the lagoon, the way they feed uh, in a tideless estuary is totally different than the way they feed somewhere like north of, of St. Augustine where you have five foot plus tides and you get flood tides and the fish come mm-hmm. up in the grass. So you have to go from the basis of, of you know, what what is a fishy, what does it do? Mm-hmm. And what kind of habitat is it gonna look for to do that? And then identify that in that area and spend time focusing on on that and usually you can put two and two together pretty quick if you understand the fish on an intimate level like that Mm -hmm. but uh you know i'm more into uh you know the sight fishing type thing nowadays than i than i am uh or than i than than i am other types of fishing i have to fish any kind of way that i can but when you're when you're a sight fisherman you're you're looking for the fish so if you can identify what might make a fish do something in a certain area whether it's a tidal cycle or uh, the lagoon being non-tidal, which is pretty much a, 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 a unique, you know, example mm-hmm. compared to other estuaries around the state, you know, you're going to be able to go out and look around and find the fish pretty quick. And when you, if you see one fish, there's going to be more. So, mm-hmm. you know, just take your time to slow down and look for, for fish from that perspective. And then once, once you start to, to crack the code, uh, things can snowball really quick, you know, as far as figuring out how mm-hmm. to catch fish in that area. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky enough that a lot of the places that I like to fish beyond the lagoon, I have friends that fish there and, you know, I get to go fish with them and they, mm-hmm. they understand a lot of it. So I'm kind of, you know, brought right into it from the get go versus, you know, going somewhere and having to, uh, DIY it per se. Mm-hmm. But that being said, you're out in the boat with them and you're like, it's not like, well, why are we fishing here? Why are we doing this? Everything's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. You know, yeah. when you, when you, when you see the fish doing what they're doing, where they're, where they're doing it. So, um, you know, it's always, it's always fun to figure out what makes the fish tick in different places. And then under having that knowledge of, of, of what makes fish do something in Jacksonville or St. Augustine, mm-hmm. um, and how the redfish then act down in the lagoon, it just lets you understand them as a species so much better mm-hmm. and, and figure out just what makes them work. And that really comes into play, especially when you're, when you're focusing on larger fish, the bigger they get, the smarter they get. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously it's really helpful to go out and to fish with different friends, captains, people who know those areas, um, because they've already been putting that time in, they've already been asking those questions, but are there certain resources that you feel like are really helpful if, if I'm out and I identify a grass or a, a bait fish, or are there certain books or websites or places that you would recommend? Man, that's a good question. I'm again, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of friends that are in the marine biology world. So mm-hmm. I can usually shoot a quick text 
and uh, get a response back, you mm-hmm. know, as, as to what this might be or what that yeah. might be. Um, do you do that? Some like cinema photo, like what is this? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you find something, uh, you know, that you don't know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll end up, you know, sending a photo to somebody, and I can usually get a, an answer pretty quick mm-hmm. after you know knowing enough people in the, uh, in the marine biology world, and and conversely, I I get that. In the opposite, I get a lot of my buddies that are like, "What is this?" You know, they'll send me a picture of a bird or of a of a of a fish or mm-hmm. you know, some kind of vegetation, a flower or a plant, and they know that I've, I'm I'm so into the 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 whole ecosystem that I could probably give them a good answer, and 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 if I can't, I know somebody that can. So, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's 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 difficult to uh, to pin that down because the 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 world of of, of academia and, and the information that's contained there within is sometimes complicated to navigate mm-hmm. um i wish there was a, a a better resource that would would simplify uh all that for people that want to get into it but at the same time the process and the effort that it takes to get to that point is part of the reward of understanding it all once you're mm-hmm. once you're there yeah and i bet you that even if if you don't know anybody who's a biologist or is kind of like that that if you looked around and looked for maybe authors or captains that you knew were like that. And you reached out and just said, Hey, I'm trying to understand stuff. Could I just send you an email from time to time questions I had? I think people who are really into it that really want to know all the different pieces of that ecosystem would probably enjoy occasionally getting to answer that email. Yeah. And there's, that's the thing is, is, uh, people think that a lot of times, uh, these individuals are busy or they don't want to mm-hmm. talk. I don't know a, a single scientist or marine biologist or someone who's very uh, astute in that realm that doesn't enjoy taking the time to to work with someone or, or educate someone or answer a question as long as they feel like it's someone who's really interested in learning about mm-hmm. it if they're just like oh what is this you know or, or for, for you know some off-the-cuff reason then they'll answer you but if you're if you're someone who's shown a true desire for for understanding uh you know the uh the ecosystem or, 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 you know, growing your knowledge on it, they'll take mm-hmm. the time to, to teach you and, and, and give information back to you. I found that in almost every instance with everybody I've worked with. That's how I learned a lot of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I built a lot of friendships that way too. Yeah. That's a great point. Another thing I want to talk about was, so you have three boats. Could you just quickly talk us through the three boats you have and kind of how you use those for your guide business? Yeah, I have, uh, I have two Hell's Bay skiffs. I have a Hell's Bay Glade skiff, a Hell's Bay professional, and I have my Yellowfin 24 Bay. So, my first boat was my professional. I got it back in 2005. Uh, I've had it ever since then, and it's really the uh, the main boat that I use. It's it's mm-hmm. very versatile. Uh, the professional is still a very versatile boat to this day. Um, not much has changed since since it came out. It really set the bar high, along with the Whipray and, and some of the other boats in the, in that class. But uh, you know, I use that boat for, you know, I can fish two people off of it. I can fish everywhere from, you know, deeper water to shallow water and it's safe on windy days. I can cross open water with it and not worry about, uh, you know, being in a situation where I don't feel safe with my clients. I know I'm, mm. I'm always within my bounds with, with pretty much anywhere that I want to fish. Uh, and it's still, you know, capable of, of silently stalking fish and, and some of the shallowest water that I'm going to want to get into the glade skiff, uh, adds another layer to that. If I have individual anglers, single fly fishermen, um, those guys, you know, we can sometimes go in other places where even the professional can't go and, and find fish, you know, especially if the reds are real, really shallow, busting minnows or, or looking for shrimp up along shorelines. 
uh, we can get back just about anywhere that mm-hmm. the fish are and, you know, find them with our eyeballs out of the water. And it's also good for flood tides and things like that because it's so narrow. You can really, you know, push right through the grass and it doesn't have a lot of drag and, mm-hmm. and makes it easy to fish out of. Uh, it's probably my favorite boat to fish out of is the Glade mm-hmm. Skiff. It's really, really a cool boat to get out and fish out of. And, and uh, even, even areas that I would normally fish in the professional, if I'm fishing with myself or with my buddies, uh, and, and it's a suitable day weather-wise, we'll take the Glade Skiff because it's just, it's a dream to pole. And uh, there's few boats that are just as, as capable of getting to places as that boat, mm-hmm. you know, through narrow little cuts through the mangroves, through little entrances to, to, to ponds or back areas. You can pretty much get in there. There's there's very few places that you can cannot get into uh, mm-hmm. with the Glade Skiff. So when the, when the lagoon started to change, I've, I've always been uh, a push-pole guide that was really how I started my career and and what I always planned on being my whole mm-hmm. my whole career, uh, flats fishing and push pulling is is what I enjoy doing. Um, but I, I realized that I needed to diversify as the lagoon changed. So uh, in 2016, I purchased my my Yellowfin Bay boat, and that really gave me more access to be able to offer the quality of trips that I insisted on offering my clients that I could no longer offer in the lagoon during certain mm-hmm. times of the year. The lagoon still had great fishing sometimes, uh, but it was becoming more challenging and less reliable. And growing up in the Port Orange and New Smyrna area here, I already knew how to fish Ponce Inlet. It just wasn't my passion. You know, mm-hmm. fishing in the deeper water uh, just really wasn't my passion. I enjoyed fishing in shallow water and sight fishing, but I knew that I needed to go back to doing that um, or at least open my my horizons up to doing that to be able to continue to put my, my, my clients on the quality of fish that not only they expected, but that I expected of myself for my charters. Uh, and it also gave me a great deal of ability to go off the beach and, and target, you know, tarpon and big mm-hmm. giant Jack Ravel, cobia, triple tail, all the species that were just kind of off limits with the flat skiff that were, weren't safe. You know, you go mm-hmm. out there and you get an outgoing tide in the inlet and it's just, it's dangerous to come back in if you're in the wrong boat. So having the elephant really gave me the ability to, uh, mm-hmm. to go out and do that. So it was, it was, it's nice to have, I look at it this way, but between all three boats, there's nowhere in my entire area that I can't fish from three inches of water to, you know, 60 foot of water. There's, mm-hmm. there's no area around here that is inaccessible to me. And that's why I have the quiver of boats that I do so that mm-hmm. I can, I can fish everywhere that I want to fish within my estuary, within my fishery. So outside of just, oh, you can do more trips. Like, how do you feel like being able to fish in all those different settings of water from three inches to 60 feet? will help somebody as an angler or a captain well you know i mean there's 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 a saying you know you uh, the the jack of all trades is the master of none right mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to 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 be the best at at, at all of those things you know mm-hmm. there's guys that, that are really great at nearshore fishing and there's guys that are really great at inshore fishing but so much is changing with florida's fisheries that being able to fish in all these different areas really benefits anybody, whether it's a recreational angler or as a guide, uh, to, to, to have access to that. And plus it's just one of those things that, that as we're seeing things change so rapidly, you just don't want to miss out on, on that part of Florida, you know, things mm-hmm. are, things are changing and, and being able to fish in all those areas. Uh, there's so many different types of fish and so many different types of fishing that you can do that once you start to figure out the different types of fishing, you're kind of like, man, I was missing out on this the whole time. And furthermore, it just it just adds you all these different things that you can do throughout the entire year. There's mm-hmm. there's times of year where where nearshore is really great. There's times of year where the inshore fishing is really great, 
and you can you can stay you know consistent throughout the entire year and always have something good to fish for or good to offer your clients if you're if you're versatile like that yeah because i'd always heard the jack of all trades thing or the master of none and then i started kind of to interview different captains and guides and um like we were talking about flip pallet flip pallet for instance right like that's somebody who people have a lot of respect for but yet he does a lot of different stuff he's into hunting hogs he's into hunting turkeys and archery he's into redfish but he's also likes to do you know whitewater stuff and so um i've kind of wrestled with that like what what's the i guess best path and i guess it really comes down to what do you want to do but i do feel like there's obviously got to be a lot of carryover or things that you might learn in bigger water that is going to somehow inform or help you be able to do something better in shallow water absolutely and and, and something else i'll mention too is that a lot of people have a, a tendency that when they find uh, a really good fishing, you know, bite of something happening, they'll focus on that, you mm-hmm. know, exclusively, um, and and then they won't do anything else until that bite's over. And then they're like, well, "What do we do now?" You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then they have to go back out and they have to hunt it all down again. Um, I like to be regularly irregular, so mm-hmm. you know, whenever I, uh, you know, whenever I find a good bite something awesome is happening i'll go okay you know i'll compartmentalize that i'll put that you know on the back burner and say i got mm-hmm. this here and then i'll immediately go out and i'll try to find something else mm-hmm. and and have have multiple things going on at the same time so that i can you know really make sure that uh that i always have something to fall back mm-hmm. on for when the pattern changes again next or so that i can i can spread out my pressure so that i'm not you know fishing one spot way too much mm-hmm. uh and so that I don't bore my clients. Because if you got a client that, you know, sometimes I have clients that fish with me three, four days, five days in a row. They don't want to do the same thing every single day over and over again. Yeah. So it's cool to be able to do, you know, well, hey, let's near shore fish for a day or two. Um, you know, and then we'll mix it up and we'll inshore fish. And then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll fish up towards Ormond and Tomoka. And maybe we'll fish some down in the lagoon. Or we'll go back up in Tomoka River or Spruce Creek. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clients enjoy being able to 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 fish, you know, all see all of what an area has to mm-hmm. offer. Um, so it's 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 important. It's prudent to be uh, variable with your with your fishing, so that you're not stuck on one thing for too long. So mm-hmm. that something changes, you don't have another option. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, if it's okay with you, I'd love to go into some rapid fire. It's never actually rapid fire, but it's just my way of saying I have a bunch of random questions that I want to ask. Sure. Um, the first one is so. I show up today. I didn't know about your, your coral background and, uh, you were showing me all your different tanks and how you're growing coral. And, um, you even mentioned earlier that to you, you've always had saltwater tanks since a young age and you kind of have used that to inform the way that sometimes you think about the water that you're fishing. Um, where did the coral background start and kind of, uh, share with everybody, I guess, how that factors into, um, you know, some of your former career stuff or current career stuff with consulting. So, uh, you know, I always, I was always just anything to do with water, uh, and salt water just infatuated me from a young age. And, uh, I started keeping aquariums and, uh, quickly progressed from, you know, you start with, with, with simple salt or, or simple freshwater fish. And then, you know, then you want saltwater fish. And usually the route most people go is, is, uh, especially when I was doing it, which was back in the, in the, in the late nineties was, um, predatory saltwater fish like lionfish and groupers and triggerfish and things like that which mm-hmm. are they're very hardy very easy to keep um but there's a limit to that you can only put so many fish in one tank you only have the same fish for so long and uh 
reef keeping and keeping corals in captivity was kind of new back then. We didn't really mm -hmm. understand it. The Germans were the first ones to really figure out how to keep corals in captivity. The Berlin method was the, uh, the method that everyone really kind of started to use back then. And the Berlin method was essentially rather than using a, a filter that you had to constantly clean and change out to, to, to make the tank work, you ran the tank like an ecosystem. You had live rock in the tank, mm -hmm. which was just rock that was taken out of the ocean uh, that was covered with, with already, you know, some sort of marine life, whether it be from bacteria through algae, uh, even coral in some cases. And you would start the tank with that. Um, and that would, you know, between that and having uh, a cleanup crew, which is what keeps the tank functional as an ecosystem. Again, mm -hmm. just like, 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 and you would find an estuary, you have animals that feed on all the different layers. You know, you have snails that clean your glass that eat algae off the rocks and glass. You have sand sifting cucumbers that clean the sand. You have, uh, hermit crabs that pick up scraps that the fish miss and also eat algae and other things in the tank. Mm -hmm. um, all these different animals uh, play together to make the tank function like an ecosystem. Once we really figured that out, that's when we figured out that we could keep coral alive. Then going forward from that, we were able to figure out how to, uh, and I, should, I, I don't even say, shouldn't say we, I'm speaking we as a hobby, not me. Mm -hmm. I, I was very young when all this was taking place. But as a hobby, uh, we figured out how to, uh, grow coral and what and what corals were taking out of the water and how to supplement that that back into the water so the coral mm -hmm. would be able to grow in in a captive environment and coral is photosynthetic even though it's an animal it has a, a a symbiotic species of algae that lives inside of it called zoanthelle and and uh the uh, uh zoanthelle basically provides a coral with 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 more than 95 percent in most cases of its nutrients mm. Um, simple sugars through photosynthesis and the, the coral provides it a safe place to, to hide from predators that would normally eat mm -hmm. uh, algae. And uh, so we had to figure out what lighting to use for, for, for coral. Uh, when we really started to grow stony coral like Acropora, uh, we, we figured out we had to use very intense lighting because they grow in shallow water. So we use metal halides. Um, all this stuff came together and as technology progressed, we went to LED lighting and uh, we really figured out that uh, taking corals out of the ocean and just putting them in a tank and hoping that they would stay alive for uh, a, a short period of time was kind of how things started off. Mm -hmm. And once we figured out that we could actually grow coral in captivity mm -hmm. was a turning point. And uh, we started to farm coral. And really that was kind of the basis that a lot of coral restoration is, is based off now is is the hobby. We're, we're the ones that pioneered growing coral in captivity. We, we pioneered fragmentation of coral, mm -hmm. which is cutting a small piece of a coral. Any coral can be cut into a small piece and it will grow into an entire new coral that's an exact replica mm -hmm. genetically of the coral that it was taken of. Just like some plants, you can take a trimming of a tomato plant and it'll grow into a whole new plant. Mm -hmm. um, all corals are that way. So we, we learned how to uh, asexually fragment coral and grow coral that way. And a lot of what we pioneered is what scientists that are working on reef restoration use now to mm -hmm. grow coral and, and restore our reefs both here in Florida and all around the world. And you like do consulting. I mean, you're still very active. You have tanks here. I, I used to professionally maintain uh, aquariums. There was a point in time in my career where I, I managed a, a reef aquarium shop and mm -hmm. I designed, installed and maintained aquariums in people's homes and businesses. Uh, but I don't, I don't do that anymore now. Mm -hmm. I just do it as a, uh, uh, an offsite type thing. I, mm -hmm. I consult with people. Uh, if people are having problems with their aquariums, they can, you know, consult with me as to what mm -hmm. the issues are. 
and I will help them find remedies to their problems using my knowledge of, of the hobby of 20 years. And I also work with organizations like Marine Discovery Center mm-hmm. uh, to help them better their aquariums as well. Um, and I also, also farm coral. So I, I grow coral uh, and propagate it in captivity. And then that coral goes back into the hobby so that we're, we're totally sustainable. We're not taking stuff out of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it's important that people understand that reef keeping in the aquarium hobby is not detrimental and harmful the way it's it's made out to be by a lot of mm-hmm. other environmental organizations. And I'm I'm very environmental centric because mm-hmm. of, of the lagoon and how I've, I've focused on this. So it, it hurts me to see uh, such organizations ignoring the fact that uh, most of the of the marine aquarium hobby is totally sustainable. A lot of the fish like clownfish, you're not going to see a single clownfish out there that is not captive raised. It hasn't been fully bred multiple generations in captivity. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there's some fish that are still taken from the wild. But most fish are bred in captivity now that, that mm-hmm. are the basic generic fish. Um, and we're, we're every year we're breeding more fish that we didn't even think were possible of breeding in captivity. Uh, dories, blue blue hippo yeah, tanks. Yeah. We breed them in captivity now. Other tanks, Well, finding Nemo didn't help. Yeah, yeah. of course. So in, in that, that brought a lot of attention to the hobby. But the imp- most important thing to understand about the hobby uh, and, and what it what it has brought to uh all, all of the awareness of not only just coral reefs, but all of our estuaries and our oceans is that someone in Kentucky that's never seen the ocean before in their life, mm-hmm. they go to an aquarium shop and they see a reef tank and they're like, wow, that's beautiful. They, they buy the stuff that they need to set up an aquarium and they start the process of becoming a hobbyist and they're growing mm-hmm. coral now and they have a, a tank in their house. And they went from someone that never saw the ocean, maybe never even still has seen the ocean. Now they're a stakeholder. They care about coral reefs now. They mm-hmm. care about what's happening in our ocean, the pollution that's happening in our ocean. And uh, it, it has a more positive effect than a negative effect. And even mm-hmm. going back to where the corals and, and fish come from uh, in places like Indonesia, we have taught these these people that live there, rather than dynamite their reef to, to, to catch fish, that they can actually farm the corals right from the reef. Mm-hmm. They can make tables underwater and they can go take little clippings of the coral right off the, the reef and they can grow the coral right there and then they ship those corals back to the United States and instead of their only job you know it's all sustenance there yeah. their only job is staying alive now they have something they can sell for for more money than they ever imagined making before mm-hmm. this allows them to better their life have better health care buy better fishing gear and simultaneously these guys have realized that they that they the, the reefs that their fathers and their grandfathers destroyed with with dynamite fishing and dragging nets and things, mm-hmm. they've taken this coral because they're so coral grows very quickly when you fragment it. Mm-hmm. You can you can make it grow much faster than you can by its by its natural spawning yeah. cycle, yeah. which only happens on certain moon cycles throughout the year. Water temperature has to be just right. Everything has to be just right for the coral to spawn, and the whole reef spawns in mass in most cases. Uh, whereas fragmentation, you can generate coral reefs all year round. So these guys got so good at growing coral that they went back and they started just planting coral on places that used to be historically beautiful reefs that were covered mm-hmm. in fish. And in doing so, they brought back the smaller fish, which brought back the bigger fish. And instead yeah. of dynamiting the reef and, and destroying the reef to catch little tiny fish that were just big enough to barely survive on, now these guys have enough money because of selling coral that they can buy fishing tackle and they put enough time and effort into restoring their reefs that they can go out and they can catch a couple big grouper, a couple big snapper, and to have better food for their family, mm-hmm. make more money for their family, and they they uh, guard the reef now. They protect the reef. Mm-hmm. They don't destroy the reef anymore. So the reef aquarium hobby has been responsible for tremendous improvements in how the reefs are maintained mm-hmm. uh, in these third world countries where 
you know, it's a luxury for us to have conservation, really, to look at it that way. You know, and in some places they don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. So by farming coral, we've brought it full circle where where these places where people didn't have the ability to do anything besides what they needed to do to survive. Now they have the ability to protect their environment. And it's brought in tourism now too. So now they have a whole new market, another layer on top of it, besides just restoring the reef and farming the coral. Uh, it's it, The reef hobby is is a good thing for mm-hmm. the oceans, not a bad thing. And it's important, I think, for everybody to understand that. Yeah. And I'll make sure to include some photos in the blog post on, on the website so that people can go look at just kind of some of the cool stuff you have going on with sure. that. My next question is, so outside of fly fishing, what's your favorite species to catch with a, with a regular conventional tackle? Um, I mean, redfish are, are, are high on my list of favorite, no matter what, uh, just mm-hmm. something about them. But, uh, out, outside of fly fishing fish that I can't fish for per se with a fly rod, um, my favorite fish is. Man, that's a tough one. Pretty much everything I fish for, I catch on fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not many fish I fish for. What if you have to fish tackle. conventional? What fish do you want to go for? Like I, I force you. I'm like, okay, me and you have to go conventional. What do, What do you want to target? If I had to pick a fish to, to fish on conventional tackle, probably cobia. Okay. So uh, they're fun. You can sight fish them. Uh, conventional tackle works good because catching cobia on fly is difficult. Mm-hmm. Not because if you put the fly in front of the cobia, if you put a fly within 10 feet of the cobia, there's a good chance it's going to come for it, mm-hmm. but uh, cobia, the rays move, ma- move move very quickly. Uh, the boat's moving, everything's moving. So even for the most skilled fly fishermen, lining up a, a cobia on fly is mm-hmm. is one of the more challenging fish. Not whereas a, a permit is challenging because it's spooky and you got to put the fly in just the right spot mm-hmm. and you got to strip it right and you got to hook it just right. Uh, whereas a cobia, it's not challenging to get the cobia to eat the fly at all. What's challenging is getting the boat in the right position, making sure that, you know, you're not moving too fast. You're mm-hmm. going the same direction as the ray or that you're, you're slowed down enough when the ray's coming at you, all those things play into it. Uh, and, and so some of the best fly fishermen I know are greatly challenged by mm-hmm. trying to catch Kobe on fly. First time I ever got a shot at a Kobe on the fly, he, he ate, but I didn't manage my line fast enough because the boat was drifting so towards fast the fish, towards and you're, the fish. And, and I'm hooking. trying to strip fast. And in it's my tough. mind, I'm thinking, I'm about to come tight, you know, on it's them. Tough. And I looked down and I wasn't even close. And it's just, it was a line management it's, issue. There's a lot of pieces of that. It's difficult. So this, the, if I had to pick a fish, to, I guess in that case, to, to fish with spin, uh, that I would enjoy catching mm-hmm. on spin, uh, you know, it, it would be cobia. But on, on that note, I fly fish whenever I can, but I'm not a, a strict fly fishing elitist. I mm-hmm. just like to fish. So if I, if I can catch a fish on fly, great. If I can't, then can I catch it on some kind of artificial lure with a spin mm-hmm. rod? If I can, great. And if I can't, what bait do I need to catch it on? I want to catch the fish one way or another, whether it's mm-hmm. on fly, artificial, or bait. It doesn't matter to me as long as I'm catching the fish. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll start with the one I prefer the most and work my way down the totem pole. But uh, but yeah, I I you know I enjoy fishing. Period, and, and that that's important for me to be diverse for my for my clients. I want to make sure that that I can be. The best guide I can be for them, whether it's mm-hmm. a fly fishing client or someone who's never fished before in their life mm-hmm. and they want to catch a big fish, you know, on spin tackle, I got to be able to, 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 to do all those things, not just, not just one or the other. Mm-hmm. My next question is, what do you think makes a great captain? I don't think there's such a thing as a great captain. I think there's such a thing as a great guide. Anybody can be a captain. Hmm. Um, 
you can go to C school and you can get your captain's license and post a few pictures on Instagram and you're a captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a guide is what makes you great as, as a professional fisherman. Uh, being a guide means that you put 100% effort, 110% effort into every one of your trips that you you fish not just 6 a.m. to noon uh, because it's convenient that you fish the, the right stage of the tide even if it means you stay out until dark and you don't get to eat dinner until 10 p.m. Uh, being a guide means that you know your clients personally, that you get to know them, you understand what they want and, and, and what makes them Mm-hmm. satisfied as clients uh having your your boat in immaculate condition having your gear being perfectly functional the top of the line tackle uh not tackle that's that's inferior to what a client might be fishing with on their own I, mm-hmm. you know i never want a client to show up and go well my fly rod and reel are better than this guy's you know because mm-hmm. I've, I've been there I've, I've a lot of my clients that i'm friends with i've fished with for you know, more than a decade and they've invited me on many trips all around the country and I fished with, with other guides mm-hmm. with them that didn't have that quality of tackle. And, uh, you know, that's something that I feel is important and just being, being personable on the boat, you know, it's not just about catching the fish. I remember a guide told me a long time ago, he was telling me about his day and he said, yeah, I just went and post up some bait. I, I put my earbuds in and just listen to music and watch my clients fish. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, that's, that's not how you, how you operate this business. Mm-hmm. Um, at least to my, to my personal standards, I, uh, I, I try to have great stories all day with my clients. We talk mm-hmm. about everything about the estuary. I'm it's, it's you're not just getting a, a fishing trip with me. You're getting mm-hmm. an eco tour and a history lesson about the entire area from the native peoples that lived here to how NASA was was built out, to the effects of of of, of that development, mm-hmm. and of course the the, the uh, preservation that it also you know the goods and the bads of it, um, you know I, I I talk about all that stuff when I'm on a charter with clients, and uh, one of the other things that I feel makes makes someone a great guide uh, is 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 uh, that they care about their fishery as much as they care about their clients, maybe even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my clients say to me, you know, I've, I've never seen someone put so much effort into making sure the fish is okay. And I'm like, you know, explain to them that a, that a 30 pound redfish is, is possibly 20 plus years old or even older than that. And, you know, you have to have a great deal of respect for this fish and handle it with great care. I, I can't stand to see people mishandle these fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I make sure my clients understand that. And it's something that they leave the trip with you know, with a different level of respect and appreciation for how we went about it. And, you know, I make sure they get an amazing photo of the fish and, and, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I make a stakeholder out of them. I make them, it's not just another fishing trip here. I give them a reason to really understand this place and care about, you mm-hmm. know, this place. And I, I think that's what makes a great guide in, in any, in any fishery. So mm-hmm. there's plenty of captains out there, not, not enough guides. Yeah. For you personally, when you think about what you're trying to accomplish with your career, what does success look like for you? Success for me, uh, is, is not just a monetary, uh, thing. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of fishermen out there that fish professionally that, uh, run a lot of charters and, you know, they focus on whatever kind of client might suit them, tourism clients or some specific client. And, uh, that's great for them as far as, you know, I wish them whatever they, whatever their personal desire is. But for, for, for me, what makes my career is operating at the level of quality that I expect and making sure that my clients 
leave thinking that the trip they got was truly a special trip that I, mm-hmm. that I that I didn't just take them out on a charter and get paid that I really cared about mm-hmm. their quality of their experience and uh, in return it, it's allowed me to build my clientele base as more of a repeat clientele base versus just spending constant tons of money on advertisement mm-hmm. and bringing in tourists that you'll never see again you know I want people that'll fish with me year in and year out uh, that, that I will call friends, not just clients. Um, that, that is what has made my career rewarding is, is that the majority of people who come here and fish with me, they're my friends. Mm -hmm. I call them and talk to them. Uh, they send me text messages. We joke around. They're not just someone who I only hear from once per year and see Mm -hmm. when they come to catch a fish. Uh, I, I built lifelong relationships with some of my clients and, some of my clients have been extremely influential on uh, upon me. One of one of my my my, my probably my very best client uh, is a guy named Tom Olivo. Uh, he's uh, extremely outgoing. He's 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 an overachiever. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been very successful in his career, and he's he's he, his 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 career is to help other people better their careers. He's a consultant himself, mm-hmm. and uh, he has influenced me tremendously uh, to improve. Every aspect of my guiding, uh, from you know my photography to the the quality of trips that I offer, and and um, you know having clients like that and building those kind of relationships uh, is really what's been the pinnacle, the reward of my career. Mm. You know, making money is is doing what you love is really great as well, but um, doing that is you know b- building those those relationships has really uh, been the best part of it. And furthermore. The relationships I built within uh, the, the industry itself with other professionals, uh, you know, Benny, Justin, mm-hmm. um, you know, Charlie and Wally, uh, a number of the guides that I that don't guide anymore that I used to be friends with, Eric Perez, mm-hmm. uh, Rob Blake, um, you know, some some of these people, Joe Gonzalez down in, down in, in, in Biscayne, um, my buddy Trevor Luce in the Keys, you know, there's just a lot of people out there, Randy Stallings in the Keys. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who. Uh, I'm thankful to call friends that I might mm-hmm. not have the same friendship with if I wasn't, if I hadn't earned my place on the water. You know, mm-hmm. you got to earn your place on the water. You, you 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 can show up and you can fish, but it takes a long time to earn your place on the water. Mm-hmm. And once you have, uh, you know, you earn the respect of of those who have previously earned their place on the water, and and that for me is between you know that 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 those those relationships both with with those types of clients that I have, and the other people who are the top industry people. Uh, that's what's been the best part of my career and you know, mm-hmm. making a little money on the side is fun too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with us on the podcast. Any last thoughts or yeah, parting so words? The, the last thing I just wanted to say, and I'll try to sum this up as quick as I possibly can. Um, everybody talks about the lagoon and what's going on with it with the algal mm-hmm. blooms. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I, 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 I've spent so much time trying to understand what really happened and what, mm-hmm. what brought the lagoon where it is and where it's going. Um, I, to start off with, I think the lagoon is starting to rebound. I think it's mm-hmm. it's at that point where it's 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 hit rock bottom already, and it's and it's on its way up. Um, the Banana River and Indian River uh, from Titusville South they haven't been as clear as they are now for as long as they have been clear for many 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 years, mm-hmm. uh, close to a decade now. Um, they collapsed first before Mosquito Lagoon, so it's only natural that Mosquito Lagoon's a couple years behind them, and will probably clarify. Uh, you know. Hopefully within the next year or two, mm-hmm. the Oriumbra can't run off of of uh, 
there's not endless nutrients out there. It's mm-hmm. gonna, it's you know, we are our, our nutrient input from from humans has definitely uh, fueled it, but it's 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 there. There's more to it than that, and and I'll explain here quickly as I can. So, what caused the lagoon to decline? So you have dairies very remote, previous to 1950. Um, we have World War II ends. The space race re- begins. We bring the German scientists over, Werner von Braun, mm-hmm. and uh, these other scientists to help beat the Russians into space, into the moon, and all that stuff. Uh, we quickly build out the entire uh, Merritt Island, Upper Indian River Lagoon area uh, for the space race. I call it the I Dream of Genie era. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we built everything out quickly. And in, in, in that post-World War II era, PVC pipe hadn't been invented. Materials were scarce. We were using a lot of septic. Whatever wastewater treatment there was 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 with you know uh, different kind of piping that wasn't suitable for long long term stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that set us up for decades of pollution, and there was a lot of just raw sewage being just dumped right into the lagoon back then. Mm-hmm. Um, as NASA grew and as the area grew along with it, um, both chemical pollution from NASA and nutrient loading uh, from decades of pollution into the lagoon. The lagoon absorbed it like a sponge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nutrients that were coming in, the seagrass actually utilized that, in my opinion. This is all my opinion. I should should preface this with. Uh, the seagrass utilized that to grow to historic levels that we hadn't seen before. If you look back at the 1943 aerial photos, which are our baseline, uh, they're on the University of Florida website. You can look back all, all over the state. There's photos mm-hmm. from as far back as 1943. And then aerial photos that go all the way forward, we can get a baseline of how much grass there was then versus how much grass there was in the most recent times. If you compare the 2009 satellite photos, uh, which were like the best satellite photos before the algal bloom started to the 1943 baselines, there was more grass coverage then than there was in 1943. So how do you explain that? Well, grass is a vascular plant, seagrass is a vascular plant. It was being fertilized by our nutrient loading of the lagoon. In not only was the grass, but there's also macroalgae, the drift algae, the grassalaria, and the sporidia filamentosa. There's there's these these think of it as an underwater tumbleweed that just mm-hmm. gets blown around with wind and, and tide uh, or currents in the lagoon. We don't have tide, but we do have currents that are pushed by the lagoon uh, or by the wind within the lagoon. And uh, that macroalgae absorbed a ton of of, of nutrients along with the, with the grass beds. So come along in the cold winters of, of, of uh, 2010 and 2011, that killed the macroalgae in, in, in a very rapid succession, mm-hmm. released a huge flux of nutrients into the water column. Uh, those were like the coldest winters that I can remember during my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lagoon was like crystal clear. It was, it was crazy looking. And uh, that killed that macroalgae and released the genie out of the bottle, if you will. It was kind of like pouring the gasoline on the ground before you light the forest fire. That started the algal blooms. That started the forest fire. The seagrass was the forest. Mm-hmm. The forest then burned. As the algal blooms progressed year by year, they shaded out the grass, uh, killing grass. Uh, the grass then, as it died, released more nutrients into the water. And you had a snowball effect where it became a negative feedback loop, where as, as more grass died, the algal blooms got denser and more intense, which killed even more grass and shallower mm-hmm. and shallower and shallower water. And I think we hit rock bottom probably around 2016, 2017. Um, as far, or at least I should say, not rock bottom, but that's when we hit the densest algal blooms. We had the fish kill in the Banana River, and we started losing seagrass. The grass beds that had been able to hold on up to that point really started to to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then follow that through uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, we pretty much lost all the grass beds to where we had nothing but just bare, bare sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that happened first in the Banana River and the Indian River. 
and that seems like that's been what uh what what's stopped algal blooms from being as intense down there the grass contained massive amounts of nutrients not only the grass but the bottom that it held down the muck that was underneath the grass all that released into the water column was fueling the algal blooms and even though oriumber can can recycle some of its own waste of dying cells it can only do that for so long there's there's no mm-hmm. energy source that's infinite so the algal algal blooms have, have started to slowly wane out so the, the only other place where we've seen the same species of algae, uh, algal blooms happen is in texas laguna madre their blooms lasted for eight years same thing killed all the seagrass and after the eighth, eighth year the bloom started to subside and the seagrass started to grow back and it was a, it wasn't an instantaneous recovery it was a slow recovery back just like it was a slow decline down it seems like we're at that same point in the lagoon here where uh the uh the banana river and the indian river are starting to show that first and mosquito lagoon will hopefully show that uh second so this is certainly exacerbated by man but i feel like something that that people should take into account when they're looking at the algal blooms is that this is probably a natural cycle that lagoons like this go through. They, they absorb nutrients until they get to a certain point where some cold shock event or some hurricane event or some event uh, causes a massive change in the system. And then it, then it causes the algal blooms. Mm-hmm. And just like in a reef aquarium, when you, when a crash starts, you, you really can't stop it. Uh, it. It has to play its course out and then the system recovers after that. And the same thing happens in our estuaries. It just takes longer for that to happen. So, some historical evidence of that possibly being the case here mm-hmm. in the lagoon was Sebastian Inlet. Uh, one of the reasons why they opened Sebastian Inlet was because the river fouled, as the reports claimed. There was fish kills and, and, and the, the water was putrid looking. Well, I mean, there was almost nobody living around the Indian River Lagoon back around, you know, the, the early 1900s when Sebastian Lint was open, how, how could, how could there, how could nutrient loading from humanity have caused, you know, an algal bloom back then? It, mm-hmm. it, it, it couldn't have. Um, and furthermore, something else to consider was we dumped way more pollution into the lagoon for decades mm-hmm. than we are currently while the algal blooms are taking place. There's more to it than that. And it has to do with, in my mm-hmm. opinion, the decline of the, of the natural, uh, sequestering of nutrients within the within the ecosystem. Looking back further beyond that, uh, here in, in New Smyrna, down towards Oak Hill, uh, there's a lot of Indian middens, Native American middens of, of shells, both clams and oysters. And some of those middens, there's layering where where the the, the natives re- relied on uh, long periods of clams and then shorter periods of oysters. And there was really no good explanation for that uh, as as far as looking at it, you know, maybe something changed, maybe their preferences changed. Looking at it now, we understand that uh, Oriumbra lugonensis, which is a pelagophyte, it has a extracellular polysaccharide coating, which is a sticky kind of protective layer on the outer part of the cell, of the algal cell. Uh, that clogs the ciliated feeding apparatuses of clams and oysters. And oysters, it really just stunts their growth, but clams, it, it just kills them. And mm-hmm. So looking at this, this, these long periods of reliance on clams and then these short periods of reliance on oysters hints at perhaps uh, periods of algal blooms back mm. then where, where because they had no choice, these Native Americans would re- rely then on oysters for a period of time. And then after the algal bloom cycle would play out, the uh, clams would recover and come back and they would go back to preferring clams because it seemed mm. like clams was, was their primary preference based on a number of middens around, mm. around the lagoon. And... Uh, uh, just something to consider for everybody thinking about this. So I, th- I think we're we're coming up on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. I think this is a natural cycle that does play out uh, 
over and over again in these types of lagoons, but we absolutely made it worse, uh, you know, from our, our, our nutrient loading. And one other thing that I, I want to mention that nobody wants to talk about, at least in the environmental community, but this is something that's another major factor in the lagoons issues is our manatee population. Um, we have more manatees in the lagoon than in any other ecosystem, uh, estuary, I should say that in the state. So there's mm -hmm. about 6,000 manatees, give or take in the state of Florida, uh, in excess of 2,000 of them live in the upper Indian River Lagoon system, which is a very small area in comparison to how how much the other mm -hmm. manatee herds have uh, as far as territory that they're spread out across. The reason for that is because when NASA was built out, they needed a power plant to power NASA's infrastructure. The power plant, and of course, the area, the whole area is is a whole. They built these power plants in, in Port St. John, the most prominent one being the Frontenac power plant that FPL operates. They use lagoon water for generating power. They boil the water, it turns into steam, the steam expands just like on a tea kettle. And instead of whistling, it goes through a turbine and spins a turbine and that generates electricity. That water is then released back into the lagoon as, as, a, as, a, as a discharge, it's a warm water you know, effluent. And that gave the manatees what they needed to eliminate their migration. They no longer had to stay south of Sebastian Inlet or further south during the winter months, they could stay in the upper Indian River Lagoon their entire life cycle, which was like manatee utopia. Very few predators, no current to fight, endless seagrass flats that were very nutrient rich. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, most hunters understand that nutrient rich grass is what drives uh, herbivores, whether it's in the Serengeti or it's in a food plot for deer. Um, you, you know, you have nutrient rich grass that allows the manatees to to grow at a very rapid rate and uh population to grow at a rapid rate so we, we we had this huge growth rate of manatees in the lagoon to where we have more manatees here than what the system can naturally carry and i don't have anything against manatees manatees have been a savior on many a tough charter for me where the wife at the end of the day uh you know this along with the husband sees a bunch of manatees by the boat and it's it's an amazing experience for people that don't get to see manatees but the reality of it is is that manatees contribute uh about seven percent of the nutrient loading to the system yes that's a recycled load but we have to take into account that there's more manatees in the system than what it historically carried what was the historical number of manatees that were in the system we don't really know nobody has records of it mm -hmm. if i had to guess i would say maybe a few hundred during the warm warm months of, of the year uh but now we have two thousand animals that live year-round in the upper Indian River Lagoon system, uh, that accounts for a tremendous amount of consumption of submerged aquatic vegetation. So manatees eat about 10 to 15% of their body weight. If you do the math conservatively uh, on, on, on that, it focuses to about 250 to 300,000 pounds of vegetation per day that the manatees mm. need to consume. So the manatees uh, are just trying to survive, and this isn't their fault, but mm -hmm. there, there is evidence that the manatees are consuming the seagrass in many ways faster than it can grow back. There's a few places where there's sticks in the water uh, that the manatees can't like get inside of the sticks because of, of where the sticks are. And the grass all, all around that, will, the, it'll just look like bare bottom, which is very, very short grass or, or what appears to be no grass at all when you're just looking in the water. And then here's the stick and in the middle of the stick, the seagrass is this tall. And you can see where the manatees can reach in with their head and get to it and where they can't. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I wish that part of the environmental focus that is is happening with the lagoon restoration would be to admit that the manatees 
uh, migration needs to be restored. So how do we do that? Um, if they cut the power off, uh, the warm water generation off at the power plants, the manatees would go into cold shock. They've so habituated over 70 years that they don't know to migrate anymore. And in fact, when they converted those plants to, to uh, natural gas, they had to artificially provide warm water. They were mandated by FWC to provide warm water for the manatees so that hmm. they wouldn't die off in mass. Um, so my proposed solution is to simply put, you know, pipes close in, like, like fence posts so close together the manatees can't swim between them, start it close to the power plant, and then each year move it out just a little bit farther, a little bit farther until the manatees start to get uncomfortable enough that you wean them off of the, uh, the warm water. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a situation that uh, nobody wants to talk about, but it's, it's anybody that fishes the lagoon knows that there's a serious imbalance with manatees within the system, and uh, hopefully at some point in time, uh, that will be addressed or the lagoon will recover on its own to a point where the manatees will spread mm. back out. They used to spend most of their time uh, in the Banana River Lagoon, no motor zone because there was no boats and there was huge uh, borrow pits where they dug for the uh, space, space shuttle launch pads, mm -hmm. the, the Saturn V launch pads, pad 39A and 39B. Um, those deep water areas provided them a place to sleep and a place to frolic and play. And then the entire Banana River was from shoreline to shoreline was a seagrass flat all the way across the entire Banana River, whereas Mosquito Lagoon and the Banana River Lagoon have deeper basins where you had grass on the edges and then deeper water in the middle. And that kind of kept this manatee population out of the public eye for all these years up until the lagoon had its its uh, seagrass loss. And then the manatees followed the, 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 the grass north to Mosquito Lagoon to where that was where the last remaining grass beds were. And that's when, when this previously... Uh, hidden manatee population that was spending most of its time in the Banana River became truly visible to the lagoon anglers mm -hmm. and stakeholders. So, uh, so to end that, you know, let's just hope that uh, the lagoons continues on this positive trend, and that uh, all the problems that the lagoon faces, both uh, easily addressable, uh, uncomfortable, or comfortable, can all be addressed at the same time. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us and showing us your passion. And uh, I learned a lot. So I really appreciate it, man. It was no great. Uh, thank you, Billy. And, and we'll make sure to include some links on how people can learn more about you and, and follow you in the blog post. Absolutely. And anybody's anybody has any questions about the lagoon or any of that kind of stuff, feel free to always reach out to me. I'll be happy to uh, discuss with anybody anything about that. Awesome. Thanks. No problem. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.